Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Least Boring Attorney Podcast on the Internet. We're back. We're back after a short hiatus, but yeah, we're back at the table. Episode three. Um, introducing the Least Boring Attorney Podcast on the Internet, hosted by Doug Morey and Natalie Collier-Smith. Good to be here. Good to be here. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, we, we missed meeting. We, uh, we missed a couple weeks. For good reason, though, we had, uh, Doug and I have been preparing for a, for a trial, um, and so we had to take a couple weeks off to, to work on that, but um, we uh, were able to resolve that, um, and kind of that's kind of our segue into our <clears throat> subject matter today. Um, we're going to be talking about premise liability cases. Uh, we are, and and it's interesting, the uh, the case we just had, obviously for confidentiality reasons, we can't go too into detail, but uh, the other side was, was very, very well represented. Um, there were two entities involved, and both both had excellent lawyers, um, and it had been mediated unsuccessfully, and uh, literally at the, uh, at, the, at the courthouse steps, as they call it, they uh, came in with a, with a offer that was... Uh, much more to our liking, and, and we accepted. But again, it was it was a situation where the other side had real good lawyers, and uh, not to break our arm patting ourselves on the back, but uh, we think we do a pretty good job too. And it was it was interesting. I started as a criminal lawyer, and criminal law cases sell at the last minute all the time. But in in the world of civil law, uh, it, it's rarer, though it does happen. So it was uh, fun to get back over there and almost go to trial again. But yeah, Natalie and I are, of course, trial lawyers, trial a lot of cases. But with COVID and the courts being, for all intents and purposes, shut down for so long, um, it, it's been it's it's been a challenge to get one to trial. Um, we were aggressive and filed suit in the vast majority of our cases and, and try to push them to trial because, you know, not for us, but although we do like trying cases, but... We've always found that the harder you push, the better off the client ends up doing. The more money the insurance company seems to find, the closer you get to trial because they've got you know exposure and risk as well. So, so there's that. But that's what we've been doing. We don't we don't give the exact date of uh, when these podcasts are put together, but uh, NCAA tournament bracket's about to come out. Any predictions? <laughs> I I think Kentucky's going to get a six seed and lose in the second round. But... <laughs> No, we're going all the way. All the way. <laughs> okay, we're, we're taping. We're recording this a little after that, but um, I, we know who won the Super Bowl too. Um, so today we're going to talk about premises liability. Premises liability, and it, it goes by a lot of different names. Whether you call it slip and fall, or slip, trip and fall, or premises liability, or slip and fall, or, or trip, or trip case, or whatnot. Um, when I when I got into law. The, uh, the advice most lawyers would tell you about these cases on the plaintiff side is don't take them because the law used to be that if a hazard, and by a hazard I mean some sort of obstruction or substance, you know, something that's on the floor that isn't supposed to be on the ground, that's not supposed to be there, if it is, quote, open and obvious, then as a matter of duty, as a matter of law, the establishment is not responsible. It was the... Re- the requirement of uh, the patron of the of the customer of the person who falls to see the quote unquote open and obvious hazard or defect and and since many 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 of these types of cases arguably fall under that umbrella many of them got dismissed under summary judgment 
Um, the law has changed the last 15 years. Look, at two laws in the weeds here, but uh, in most areas of law, including torts, we have something called the restatement. And the restatement is, is essentially a group of legal scholars and you know, great legal minds who come together and, and have different um, points in there as far as what the law ought to be, what the direction the law is moving in toward, and where the law ought to be moving toward. And the restatement second, 343A, the uh, restatement uh, opined that slip and falls should not, I'm, I'm paraphrasing obviously, should not be determined as, as on open and obvious as a matter of law or a matter of duty, but rather more along the lines of foreseeability and assessing the liability of both parties. In other words, yes, people do need to watch where they're walking. However, it's a fair question to ask a store, why'd you have that big puddle of water there in the first place? You know, it, it's certainly fair to say that the person, if the person could have and should have seen the water, well, then they could have and should have seen it. However, if you're running a store or a business, you know, why do you have puddles of water or grapes on the ground or whatnot? So it, it, it's a more balanced uh, approach that allows the case to get to a jury and let the jury assess fault and say, okay, um, person, uh, yes, you should watch where you're walking and a reasonably prudent person in this situation would have seen that. So we're going to ding you some for it. However, store, um, you are running a business, you're inviting customers in to, to be there and spend their money, you really ought to do a better job than to leave puddles of water and grapes and whatnot on your floor for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes at a time. So it puts these cases in front of a jury and allows them to assess um, liability toward a business and thus open up a potential uh, avenue for the injured party receiving some compensation. Is that a fair assessment of it? sounds pretty pretty good to me so okay so i'm at walmart and i slip in a big puddle of water so what are you saying doug i can just walmart's gonna write me a big check for because i slipped on their on their puddle of water i can tell you from experience dealing with walmart walmart it, it, you got to fight for walmart to write you a big check if insert a terrible horrible thing here that walmart's a thousand percent at fault for but i digress <laughs> i try to be careful i'll say in this podcast but i'm not going to be careful about a few entities that I've battled with, but anyway. Um, but, to, but to seriously answer your question, one of the first things we do when we assess these cases is and we take very seriously responsibility to help our clients, but also to not bring quote-unquote frivolous lawsuits. And in looking at a premises liability case, we don't want to hype somebody up and act like they, they've got a case when they don't. So the first thing we do is uh, assess what exactly, what the obstacle was. What I always like to do when someone walks in, I say, look, tell me in your own words as a lay person, what did the store do that they shouldn't have done? Or what did the store fail to do that they should have done? Yep. And every so often the person will say, well, nothing. And I'll at that point politely advise them they probably don't have a case. Right. But if, if there is a foreign substance on the ground that shouldn't be there, if the store itself caused it, an employee spilled it, or uh, it fell off because poorly shelved or whatnot, then that is the responsibility of the store, subject to the fact that you do have some, you still have a duty, or you still have a responsibility to see this, but the store has the responsibility to keep their walkways safe. So, and the way stores particularly are designed, 
nothing in a store is put there by random chance. All those displays, all those signs, all the, the they, I used to work, my first job was at Kroger when I was 16. They used to go out facing the product. We would come in at night and literally take all the cans at the back and push them to the front because psychology studies show people will buy more stuff from a store where the products are closer to them and facing them. It looks newer and brighter, like, oh, I got to have some of this. In other words, stores don't want you looking at the ground. It's not only ground you can buy. So they, they angle things so you're looking up, which is perfectly fine as long as they're keeping the floor safe. If they don't keep the floor safe, then we got a problem. So the first question is, how, was there some sort of substance on their ground that shouldn't have been there or put another way? Did the store do something they shouldn't have done or fail to do something they should have done? The second question is, well, how did the substance get there? If the store did it, by the store, I mean an employee or agent of the store, that's on the store. If a customer did it, it's a little, it's a little closer call. Um, it used to be the responsibility of the plaintiff to show that the substance was on the ground long enough that the store ought to have known about it. You can imagine this is pretty hard to do because the plaintiff had little to no control over any of that information. In a Kentucky case called Walmart v. Lanier, they flipped the burden on this. Thankfully, the Supreme Court uh, said, no, now it's the, it's the obligation of the store to show that the substance wasn't there long enough for them to know about it. And while the courts have never specified a specific amount of time, it's more of a you got the totality of circumstances type test. Let's go back to your example, Natalie. If on aisle four, some customer is by herself and dumps a drink on the ground and walks off, and then 60 seconds later, she's gone, but Natalie walks down the aisle and slips on that, that water, that drink that she... The, previous customers build, um, Walmart's going to win that case because yeah. Walmart's going to reasonably say, Natalie, we're sorry you fell in our store. We, Gosh, we hate for that to happen, but realistically, we can't be everywhere all at once, and we didn't know that customer was going to dump that drink there, and you know, we, we didn't have time to know about it or, or do anything. Now, Walmart, had, all stores have an obligation to re, you inspect their stores at a reasonable interval of time, but 60 seconds is not a reasonable interval of time. So in that case... I had a case like this once years ago uh, out of county where um, it was a, a big uh, store that you've heard of and this lady fell on some grapes and, and we got the information and it was almost exactly like I just described. Some other person literally spilled the grapes there 15 seconds before and you know what much we could do. Those are thankfully rare. Most of the time when it gets to this point, it's either the store did it or it was there long enough the store should have known about it. But but the um, the other things do the other side of that does happen. Uh, the The next thing we would do is start to assess what steps the store could have taken to warn, because they have a duty to warn. Uh, going back to my first job, part of my job was a spot mop. We, I would take a mop around the store and those caught those yellow wet floor signs, and if I saw something needed to be cleaned, I'd, I'd mop it up and I put the signage down saying wet floor. Well, they don't put the wet floor sign down. You don't know the floor is wet. So then you fall on the wet floor. So it, you, did they did they meet their duty to warn people as to you know whether it was safe to walk there or not, or whether there was some kind of substance there? So, if, so to answer your question, if uh, somebody falls in water at Walmart, I'd want to know how the water got there, 
and how long it had been there, if, if relevant, and also how open and obvious it was. Now, open and obvious isn't going to, for all intents and purposes, isn't going to beat the case at the summary judgment level, but it is going to be a factor for a jury to consider. The more concealed the water is, the better case the plaintiff's going to have. Right. Right. And yeah, and, and I like, <clears throat> just to go back for what you said, I like to frame it like that to clients because in terms of, okay, what did the store do that they shouldn't have done or did they not do that they should have done? That's a just a real kind of common sense way to look at, at duty um, because it, just the fact that you fell on somebody's property, whether it be a store or we might talk in a minute about somebody else's, you know, like a residential property, that doesn't mean you necessarily have a claim. Um, you know, people think, oh, I fell at Walmart. They, you know, they got to pay me. I broke my leg. Um, it's not the case. So, yeah, we have to start, you know, we have to prove in a negligent, which is a negligence uh, claim, you've got to prove duty, number one, that the store owed uh, you a duty. And then there's also some nuance in that in terms of if the injured person was an invitee, which if you're at a business, you're usually an invitee. So that's the highest level of duty that they owe you. Um, and then uh, a licensee is the next level and then a trespasser, but... It's probably its own podcast in and of itself, but um, in most cases we're talking about a person who was at some sort of commercial store, in which case the the store owes their customers a duty to maintain a reasonable premises. It does not, however, the law does not require them to maintain a perfectly safe premises without any sort of, you know, cracks in the sidewalk or uneven steps, or so we're not talking about, you know, a perfect uh, premises without any sort of hazard whatsoever. So it is important to know just because you happen to be injured on at a store doesn't necessarily mean you have a... I, I'm glad you said that. I should have led with that, frankly, because it, there is that prevailing wisdom out there that people think, well, I got hurt at, insert name of big store here, therefore name of big store here owes me a bunch of money, and, and right. that's just not the case. Every once in a while, the store might have what's called med pay, and that's very similar to no-fault insurance and car wrecks where um, if you get hurt in the store, there might be a 1000 maybe $5,000 available to pay some medical bills. Um, but other, but no, you're, now there's 100% right with that. A lot of people just seem to be under the impression that they fall in a store, the store owes them money. That's not the case. Right. You know, there has to be some, some breach of duty, something the store did wrong. Either, again, they did something, the store did something they shouldn't have done or failed to do something they should have done. Yeah, I'm thinking of the movie with Jim Carrey. I can't think of the title of it, where he he slips and falls and he makes money off of it, so he continues to do it. He goes in big stores and falls. It was a terrible movie. But Ace Ventura. No, it was it's a slip and fall movie. Like the that's mask? all he does. It's like a con movie. I can't okay. remember. I'm just naming, right. yeah. <laughs> naming random yeah. Jim Carrey movies. Liar, liar. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. He just that makes is. money and money and money though, just falling and. It's yeah, that's like a it. you know that's a trope to to poke fun at injury lawyers, which you know is just not how the real world real world operates. Um, there are laws in place that you know it's it's not like Doug said we don't we don't file frivolous lawsuits and we we painstakingly go through the facts when an initial intake when we meet with clients and you know oftentimes visit the scene and uh, see if there's any photographs ask for videos 
of the fall incident reports. I mean, we, we really try to investigate and, and gather all the facts to make sure that, you know, our clients have, have valid claims that would meet the elements required under the law. It, that's a great point. If we, as officers of the court, and, and frankly also as small business owners, it is a really bad idea for us to bring a frivolous claim. And most importantly, it's not fair to the client. The worst thing you can, one of the worst things you can do to somebody is get their hopes up when it's all false hope. Yeah. So part of the job is telling people, I'm really sorry you're hurt, and I really wish I had better news for you, but I, I don't think I'll be able to help you, and here's why. And I certainly encourage you to talk to another lawyer, and maybe he or she will see something I didn't, but, or we didn't, but, and, and we do that. If we bring a claim, it's, it's because we, we believe in it. We're putting our name on it. We do it for a reason. Uh, I get frustrated at some of these places where, now, this is probably a separate podcast, but I'll, I'll be brief. When we open a claim with the, the uh, store, we haven't filed a lawsuit yet. We're in the pre-litigation phase. And we, we ask them for information, like is there any video, is there an incident report? And some of them are very forthcoming. They'll turn stuff over. Some of them won't. And that, that grape case I mentioned earlier, uh, where they fell on grapes, this particular entity is just notorious for not giving you anything. And the, um, the person on the other end, who was herself an attorney, although was working as a, as a claims adjuster at the time, said, you know, I, I wish the policy were different, but it's not. I, I can't send you this video. And I said, well, you know, I can't just take your word for it. This is silly. You send me a video saying what you're describing this as, I, I, I'm, we're done here. I mean, I, but some places are smart about that. Some places aren't. I've never quite understood why. But the other thing I noticed about these guys, doing a bunch of them over the years, I know why places train their employees this way, but it drives me crazy. When I started doing slip and fall cases, and my slip and fall, of course, for those joining our podcast late, uh, let's see, that's my radio, uh, premises liability, slip and fall, trip and fall kind of cases. Um, when I started doing these cases, I noticed a trend where people would come in and they'd be living. I fell at blank store and they treated me like crap. They acted like I was a criminal and I was trying to put one over on them and I went to the hospital and I got an x-ray and I'll get the results next week and I want to sue this place and blah, blah, blah. And then they would leave. I'd sign up. I, I would sign them up. I wouldn't file a lawsuit. Like I say, I'd investigate, but I'd, I'd investigate further. And then I'd have trouble getting hold of that client. This happened more than once. And I'd finally track them down and, and, and they'd say, oh, oh yeah, that, um, oh, the x-ray came back negative. I, I, I don't want to fool with this. And that's fine. I, I, I don't begrudge anybody the right to walk away from something. But the point of this is, these things go on longer than they should sometimes because the stores these days, some of them, are apparently taught to be kind of, I don't say belligerent, but defensive from the onset. I really think some of these cases would not go very far if the stores would just come out and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Well, what can I do? How can I help? That's really what some people all are looking for. Yeah. Most people, believe it or not, are not con men or con women looking to make a make a, a buck they don't deserve. But you got to treat people like people. Some of these stores seem to have lost the big picture on that. But yeah, yeah, we have had so many clients that were were just, you know, really upset of how they were treated. And yeah, uh, 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 oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Can I get you anything? You know, let me get you a chair. I mean, those little things go a really long way to yes. to make people feel like. Okay, I, I, you know, it's this is an okay situation. Let me just get better and not have to, you know, pursue a claim. Although you're entitled to it, even if they even if they do treat you well, right? Um, and you are injured due to their negligence, you still have a claim. There's no, you know, hard feelings. They have insurance for a reason, but 
but yeah, it would go probably many uh, uh, personal or uh, many uh, premise cases probably wouldn't even be filed. Those claims wouldn't even be filed if they just got an apology right off the bat no. and were treated well. Well, it, it's I guess it's not technically a matter of law that if you're doing a premises liability podcast in Kentucky, you have to mention this case, but it should be. Um, Kentucky River Medical Center versus McIntosh is the case that uh, that changed things. We talked about open and obvious going from a an issue of duty to to an issue of uh, you know an issue of breach and causation, and it was not duty. And this is the case from 2010 where the Texas Supreme Court adopted Restatement 343A. Remember, we talked about the restatement uh, being a, a kind of a, a guideline for for where the law is and where it should be going. And in this case, the Kentucky Supreme Court said open and obvious should no longer be a, a legal barrier to these cases, but rather it should be something, it is a fact for the jury to consider. Now, I, I will sort of read the entire case, but the facts in, in, in Kentucky River versus uh, McIntosh, a paramedic, an EMS employee who had um, been to this particular hospital before was transporting a patient into the hospital, this obviously being an emergent situation. Now, apparently, virtually every hospital in Kentucky is designed one way, and this one was designed a different one. The ramp was an awkward sort of way where if you, it was done backwards or different, I, don't say, I shouldn't say backwards, it was, it, was, it was put together in a way that was different than what people are used to, and if you weren't paying attention, you'd, you'd fall. Well, she was carrying a, a man, and she's walking backwards. I love how I'm, we're doing a podcast. I do the demonstration, the visual, and walking are. backwards like, any, like anybody. Yeah, um, she's walking backwards, carrying this guy on this, this stretcher, and she's obviously paying attention to that as she should be. Again, emergent situation, misses the drop off and falls, and the hospital relied on, well, you've been here fifty times. You, you knew that was there, and she reasonably said, well, yeah, but I was my kind of paying attention to this injured patient who needed my assistance and that's why hospitals are here right and why is this design why is this put together like this in the first place and the court agreed and said no you can't just you can't just say well we've got this really poorly built ramp but hey you know you knew about it that's that's not good enough anymore so they picked the right case to do this with the facts the plaintiff was very uh, sympathetic and the facts were i think from just a lay perspective very uh plaintiff friendly but that being said Kentucky River Medical Center versus McIntosh is the Kentucky case that, that changed things on open and obvious. So now it is an issue of fact rather than an issue of law on premises liability or slip and fall cases. Yeah. And just to clear up, just for people who might not be familiar with you know litigation terms and stuff. So if we're, <clears throat> if we're dealing with issues of law, a judge decides issues of law. Juries decide issues of fact. So when Doug says, you know, as a matter of law, open and obvious used to be kind of a bar um, to recovery as a matter of law, that means a judge would say, you know, based on arguments from counsel, they would listen and say, okay, the, uh, the facts um, uh, support that this was an open and obvious danger. That's an issue of law. Judge says there's no case. So basically your case goes away. Um, but now it's just another fact to, to um, argue so that becomes something that a jury gets to decide. So those are just other issues. So your case can now be presented to a jury and a jury gets to listen to, you know, facts about it being an open, obvious danger, facts about it being a, a hidden or a latent um, hazard or defect um, and all the other things Doug described. So 
uh, judges decide law, juries decide facts. So the way we get to a jury is to make sure we have genuine issues of material fact at play, and then we get we get to a jury, and then a jury decides. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a premises liability, a slip and fall cases. We've we've a, a personal injury podcast, and we've talked about uh, dog bites, um, and we talked about what to do after you've been in a wreck. And by that, a car wreck, automobile accident, car accident, uh, however you want to describe it, car crash. Um, and now we've talked about premises liability. I promise we're going to get back into more car wrecks, car accidents, car crash stuff here uh, shortly. But we want to, to touch on premises liability today because we, we, like I say, just got a case ready for trial on that. And thought we have some trial stories to tell you about. All, but no, uh, we, it's, it's a very, very interesting area of law that... Natalie and I have a lot of experience with and would uh, certainly like to talk to anybody that uh, thinks they have a case like this and, and potentially help them out. So I want to uh, just really quickly, can you tell a little bit um, more examples of uh, slip and fall? You all touched on um, oil or water or some kind of spill on the floor, but what other things have you seen? Um, I know slipping on ice and... Um, uh, tripping over curbs, things like that. Like, can you can you give us some more examples of cases in the past that you've had? Well, those, those are both those are two great examples. Um, yes, ice. Uh, we had one not terribly long ago where the ice was uh, on on stairway. You know, interesting going back to the pre-open and obvious. They used to, and this is one of the reasons why open and obvious is a legal barrier was kind of silly. They would tell businesses um, don't do anything because if you don't do anything then the ice is more open and more obvious. Whereas if you try to clean it up and don't get all of it and someone falls, they can sue you. One of many examples of open and obvious is illegal as a, a legal barrier is kind of a dumb policy in my opinion. But uh, to your point, um, yes, we've done a lot of ice cases and done very well with those. Those, like anything else, come down to, you know, how open and obvious was it, even as an issue of fact, uh, whether the ice could have been cleaned, should have been cleaned, what steps they took. Um, had plenty of cases where people were supposed to salt something and didn't. Those are particularly effective in my in my experience when combined with something else, like an ingress or egress or entrance or exit. That entrance and exit in particular, businesses have an obligation to really keep that safe because uh, people are really not as attentive there and trying to, plus fire code, you got to get in and get out. But businesses, people are, Pay attention to getting in and getting out, not looking at the ground. Also, lighting. If the lighting is the worse the lighting is, the the harder it is for a business to explain why they thought it was okay for their customers to be wandering around an icy parking lot. I mean, the, the parking lot and the, and the walkways should be cleared to begin with, especially though if it's dark. So, uh, yes, we've done very well with ice cases. Um, painting with a very broad brush, the ice cases tend to do even better when they're, they're combined with something else, either insufficient lighting or the ice being hidden for some reason or um, there not being a reason to foresee their ice being in a particular spot, something like that. Um, as for curbs, yes, we've done those as well. McIntosh, the aforementioned McIntosh case, though not us, was a, was a curb ramp type of thing. Um, those tend to get a little more into building codes and we're very comfortable with that. We work with a lot of experts in that area. Um, there are codes that regulate how how everything basically should be built. And while those codes are important, that's not necessarily just positive to your case. Meaning, if the other side violates a code, 
they're in trouble. But even if they don't, there are certain industry standards. Um, ASTM and ANSI are, are the two main ones that people cite to, to say, hey, even if you're technically up to code, the industry has determined that the standard really should be this and you didn't meet this for XYZ reasons. So we've got a lot of experience in dealing with cases like that where, yeah, maybe you technically meant the code, but as Natalie mentioned earlier, a, a business owes their customers or their invitees. Um, invitee is the highest of the three obligations. An invitee is, is entitled to the most protection. So, you know, businesses really should be doing more than just saying, well, we're meeting the bare bones minimum of the code. So that's all we got to do. An invitee, by the way, is a customer. It's like, if you come to my law firm to see me as a potential client, you're an invitee. If you come here because you're a friend and I invite you here, you're a licensee. If you break in in the middle of the night, you're a trespasser. Okay, that's, that's invitee, licensee, and trespasser. Invitees get the most protection. No licensees get a lot of protection, too. Great. Well, uh, that was a slip and fall premises liability uh, cases. Yeah. Um, been doing some uh, quick recall stuff, so my, my trivia question today might, might lead a little more into that, but uh, I love U.S. presidential stuff. Two, uh, two United States presidents have been born in Kentucky. You know who they are? Lincoln. Lincoln. Yes. And hmm. uh, we need like the Jeopardy thing. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. Is it like some obscure one that nobody would know, Doug? Well, I think everyone should know every president. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> uh, and no, this now is from Kentucky. He was great. <laughs> Uh, Zachary Taylor. Huh. All right. Zachary did Taylor, not, Abraham Lincoln. Did not know that. Okay. How come he doesn't have his own sign when you enter birthplace of Lincoln, birthplace of... Well, he didn't win the Civil War. Taylor. I mean, you know, you got... <laughs> sure, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Lincoln has a little more going on, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting. This is a trick question. Biden's the 46th president. Okay. Biden's the 46th president. 46. Yes. 46. President of the United States. Trick question. How many presidents of the United States have we had? How many, that's, let me ask you this one. How many people have been president of the United States? Oh, gosh. Like. 45. Grover Cleveland had two terms that weren't consecutive. So he was, I'm doing this from memory, I think 22nd and 24th president. So he gets counted twice. Oh, okay. So there are 45 people who have been president of the United States. But our oh, okay. current president is the 46th president of the United States. I see what you're saying. I was I was trying to remove all the double... I was trying to think how many Years. people have served double terms and yeah. subtract yeah. that from 40... Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so 40... These all want to do a non-consecutive one. Gotcha. Well, if anybody knows the movie that I was trying to figure <laughs> out... Jim Carrey movie, Slips and Falls, he takes advantage of the system... Uh, Comment, please, because that's going to drive me absolutely crazy. But We've been hearing a lot of good feedback on the podcast, and we appreciate that. Thank you all for listening, and thank you all for uh, supporting us. And uh, just sitting kid, leave a comment. Yeah. Leave a comment. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Thank you, guys. See you soon. Thanks.